0: Well, as you may have figured out, today we're going to be returning to the prophets for a little bit because there are some things before I wrap up the entire series that I just want to be able to show you. Now, I'm going to spend again the majority of my time in the book of Isaiah today. And so you hopefully you've already made your way there. If you haven't, go ahead and, and put a finger there or a bookmark there now. But as I said, we're also going to reference some of the other passages in the Old Testament and And the reason for this is simply that uh, I'm going to be walking you through various texts that show of what the prophets longed to see. That is, you know, the title of the sermon. Now, before we get into everything, though, I want to just remind you of the context we've been dealing with with the minor prophets. Now, if you remember, there is this continual emphasis on these two major themes. There is one theme, which is judgment, and then the other, which is salvation, Now, by now, I'm imagining many of you probably don't have too much of a trouble at least tracking with the theme of judgment, right? But today, we're going to see how intimately involved this idea of judgment and salvation is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we've seen time and again, though, that Israel has undergone these patterns of rebellion, if you will. Uh, They've forsaken the covenant God made with them. God sends in the prophets. They warn them of the judgment that is to come, And yet, what do they do every single time, but ultimately reject the prophets, right? They send them to be killed, or they just simply dismiss them. Well, then Israel is plunged into judgment and despair for her sin over and again. This is the pattern we see over and again throughout the Old Testament. The most startling realization of all of this, though, is that we see God is ultimately a holy God. He is a jealous God. He is a God of vengeance and even retribution. He's by no means going to clear the guilty, and yet somehow Israel misses this time and again, don't they? And I think we often miss it ourselves time and again. But they pursued rebellion, they pursued covenant disloyalty, and it was all because of their hatred for God. Uh, However, it must be made clear this rebellion is not simply limited to the time of the prophets or even the kings of Israel. Again, all through the Old Testament, we see that God really deals graciously with his people. And then what happens? But that they slip again into rebellion, into idolatry, and they suffer under his wrath. Now, we ultimately trace this rebellion back to the very first instance of it with Adam and Eve, don't we? They took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from that time forth, our three great enemies of sin, Satan, and death have reigned supreme. In one way or another, beloved, throughout all of human history, and especially throughout the history of the scriptures, you have simply seen this curse play out. We've seen God over and again be faithful to judge his people. He's faithful to all his promises, not just the pleasant ones we like, but even the ones to judge, right? He was faithful to judge Adam and Eve for their rebellion. He was faithful to judge the patriarchs, it is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for their rebellion. And then he was also faithful to judge Israel for their rebellion. And so what does that tell us? But God is consistent, that at the end of all days, he's going to judge the unbeliever, that is all the world, and they will either go to heaven or hell, right? Rebellion must be dealt with in some aspect. And yet then out of this, we also see this theme of salvation present throughout the entirety of the Old Testament as well. Now, the beautiful reality is that just as we saw this first inkling of judgment with Adam and Eve, so too do we find this first inkling of salvation with Adam and Eve. We find a promise right after the world is plunged into sin and darkness and despair, right after the curse is introduced, that one would come from Eve's, she would birth this one, essentially the seed of this woman, Uh, one would come who would crush the head of the usurper, that great old serpent, Satan. Satan. And so as time progresses, further revelation is given to these men and women, to the patriarchs first, then to Moses, then again to King David. Uh, This promise becomes ever deeper and wider, if you will. There's subtlety and nuance and depth and meaning to it that was not seen in previous generations. And so as God continues to shed light on this one who is to come, we see that Israel continues in her waywardness, and yet God is always faithful to bring about this promise, He's going to continue to reveal more and more about this Christ, but the surety of his promises are set. Now, by the time we come to the prophets, there are several key passages and promises that we can take a look at about this Messiah that every single Israelite would have known. They would know he was the one who is to come, who delivers his people from their three greatest enemies of sin, Satan, and death. They would have also known he is the one to restore the fortunes of his people, being Israel, and that he's going to deliver them from all of their oppressors. They know, too, that he is this ultimate one to redeem all of creation from the curse. In other words, these prophets all foretold of the coming Messiah in light of what he would accomplish, not only through his coming, but his death and resurrection, and ultimately his glorification. And so what we're going to see today, or what I at least hope to show you today, is that Uh, This reality concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ has not only been revealed to the prophets, but they actually eagerly awaited this. This was their hope, beloved. These are all the things that the Apostle Peter tells us that these guys made careful searches and inquiries into, uh, seeking to know the person and the setting, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating of his sufferings and the glories to follow. These are the things that Peter also tells us are the things even angels long to look into. And all of what they concern is his first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the salvation that he has brought, but also Christ's eternal kingdom. It involves a restoration of all things again, including this nation that we have to deal with called Israel. What I, what I want to show you though is that these promises are also tightly connected in the prophets that. It's often difficult to tell them apart simply because everything is working towards this same great end that we know is the redemption and restoration of all things in the kingdom of God. Now, several theologians liken this reality to a mountain. They describe it. They say the kingdom of God is is like this and that it is one mountain. And yet, as you approach this mountain, there are varying different peaks and valleys and, and subtleties and nuances and shades that we start to see that there are different aspects of this kingdom. There's different characteristics of this kingdom. And what I want to show you is that the prophets, they're they're far off from this mountain, right? And so they look at all of this, not seeing those peaks and valleys and distinctions that we would see. They would not see the subtleties and nuances of all these things as we would see them, simply as a result of time and further revelation, In other words, I want to show you the prophets ultimately had the same exact hope that we have, even though there's depth to it, if that makes sense. That he was not only their hope in finding forgiveness by God or from God, if you will, but rather that they knew his coming produced a hope in the redemption of everything, right? That was their ultimate hope, is that God would lift the curse. And so today we're going to focus on three things the prophets longed to see concerning the birth, the life, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, I want you, though, to pay close attention to all this as we're going through it, because I really want to see, or want you to see, rather, how tightly connected these things are in the text. Now, look with me. We're going to go to Isaiah 7 first. We'll look at verses 14 through 16, where we see the birth of Christ foretold. Again, that's Isaiah 7, verses 14 through 16 And keep your finger here because, again, we're going to spend the majority of our time in this book today. Now, notice the prophet writes, "'Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and to choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken.'" Now, this is a well-known and well-loved passage by many Christians, isn't it? This is one we all refer to, especially during Christmas time, because we know it speaks of the birth of our Savior. But there are some things going on behind the scenes here that you may or may not be aware of that I nonetheless want to bring you to, at least in in showing you and understanding. Now, the context of this whole prophecy here, it comes during a time of much social unrest or upheaval. Israel, but specifically, the kingdom of Judah is under this judgment of God. And so, as a result, there's all sorts of social unrest. Now, the reason for this is that Assyria is rising up through the ranks and they pose a threat to all the nations around them, right? You know, we've, we've learned about this in the book of Amos. Amos has already prophesied of, of judgment to come against the northern kingdom of Israel. And yet, everybody else is left unsafe because Assyria is just this massive powerhouse. So Amos told them that this great superpower known as Assyria is going to come in, he's going to go through the land, ravage them and destroy them, and basically kill their loved ones or bring them off to slavery. So what comes of this is, in fact, a response. But it's not the response we hope of. It's not response of repentance and faith in Christ or the Lord himself. Rather, it's a response from the northern kingdom that says, we must make ready for war. And so what do they do? Well, Israel's king... Of the northern kingdom makes an ally the king of Syria. And they approach King Ahaz of Judah, of the southern kingdom, and they say, hey, we've got to form a military alliance so that way we can fend off the Assyrians. But King Ahaz refuses. And so then what do the northern kingdom in Syria do? Well, they proclaim war against Judah. They think, hey, if we can go in here and ransack and conquer Judah, then we can put a more pliable king on the throne. And then we can have our alliance and go to war against Assyria. Now to do all this, they have to kill this king. They have to kill Ahaz. They have to kill his descendants. And so ultimately what that means is that the line of David is going to be wiped out if they get their way. Well, beloved, what's at stake? The promise of God, you got it, right? The promise that one would come forth from this line of David that would be established on David's throne forever. In other words, the hope of Israel's Messiah is at jeopardy. And this is the reality of what they're dealing with here. Now, this is when Isaiah, the prophet, comes to reassure Ahaz that the attack on Judah is not ultimately going to be successful. In fact, he says soon the northern kingdom won't even be a people, they're going to be utterly desolate. But most importantly, he speaks again of this covenant sworn with David, which we just saw here. He says that this promised one would come. He would be born of a virgin. His name would be called Emmanuel. And this king would ultimately rule in righteousness. Now, from here, Isaiah continues to speak of their judgment. He goes into chapter eight. He speaks of this time of judgment that must come first before redemption. And this is all we've seen through the minor prophets over and again, too, isn't it? The hope of the Messiah is present. The hope of God is present. All of his promises are still in play, and yet judgment must come. So he tells Judah that they would be judged by God. He says, you're going to see distress, you're going to see darkness, you're going to see the gloom of affliction. How about that for a pep talk? But now, flip with me to chapter 9. Again, keep your finger here in chapter 9 because we're going to come back to this in the next section. But for now, look down at verses 6 and 7 and see what Isaiah writes. You see, we see once again, this promise of the Messiah comes uh, to light here. He writes, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, in a peculiar twist, in a peculiar word, he says The Assyrians are coming to judge you. They're going to ransack everything. You you will have gloom, darkness, despair. All of this is a judgment of God. And yet he says the answer to this is a child. The answer to this is a child. This child is going to be called the Wonderful Counselor. Again, he's he's not going to need human counsel. He will transcend human wisdom even. He would be called Mighty God as we see here. He possesses all the power and the fullness of very God himself. He would be called Eternal Father in that his reign and rule endures throughout all eternity. And then finally, he's called this Prince of Peace. He's one who, in his coming, secures everlasting peace, not only between God and, and man, but between all mankind. That's incredible. And yet, immediately after this promise is given, Isaiah then continues he says god is still very angry with you he is still going to judge you you must have this time of gloom and despair and darkness well the prophet micah he's prophesying at the same exact time isaiah is so if you can make it there great if not that's okay just listen that's that's micah 5 we're going to see 2 through 3 but micah also confirms this reality right he confirms the reality of this uh, messiah who is to come but he also confirms, confirms that darkness and gloom and, and this despair of judgment must be on top of them for this prolonged period of time. Well, Micah says, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up Meaning Israel, and here he speaks of giving them up in judgment until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Now, both prophets are speaking of this Christ who is to come, this eternal one, this Messiah that they are to look for, that they are to hope for. And yet, are they not both also saying that this time of darkness and affliction must come first? It is a prolonged time. It is until this one gives birth. In other words, a Messiah would indeed prove to deliver Israel, and yet it must be a time of a darkness where judgment must come upon her first for her sins, and then this child would be born. Then this righteous king would be the one among them. It is only when we come to the book of Matthew that we start to see this reality actually take place, right? Matthew speaks of this in in chapter 1 where he says, that Jesus' birth is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy here. And then we see truly how long this period of darkness and affliction really was. But the thing I want you to notice from here is not simply this darkness and affliction, but how tightly connected these things are. Right? His birth is connected to the restoration of Israel in both of these passages. There's no reference to how long this process takes. There's no reference to uh, when they would be restored, But there is a promise that Christ will be born, and this is what puts all these things into motion. Now flip with me to Isaiah 11, and we see the prophet continue to speak and give further clarity to who this Messiah is. Isaiah 11, we'll start right in verse 1. Now this passage speaks yet again of the birth of this one who is to come. He says so in verse 1, he gives even further clarity to this lengthy delay of his coming, He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, the stump of Jesse here actually refers to this once mighty kingdom of David. It's talking about this idea that it's been reduced to almost nothing simply because of God's judgment being upon them. And yet there are signs of life, aren't there? That's the exciting thing. He says, from from the roots, a branch will arise and bear fruit. In other words, he's giving them essentially the same promise that he gave to Ahaz earlier. A king is going to be born of this line of David, who is, this line is basically in tatters at this point, but he's saying, one will come yet and sit on the throne of David forevermore. He's alluding back to this promise given to David once again by saying that there are still signs of life. This king from David's line would be empowered by the spirit. He would establish perfect righteousness in his reign, which we see in verses two through five. This king, from David's line, would establish peace that changes even the nature of animals, which we see in verses 6 through 9. Now, we know the world is not even remotely like this, is it? I mean, you could just take a quick glance here. How many mothers here are going to get your children and let them play by the den of a viper? None of you, right? But in this day, it would be safe. That's crazy to think about. Well, he goes on to say that this king, from David's line, would not simply be the king of Israel, but all the nations will seek him in verse 10. And then during this time, verses 10 through 16, we see that this king's line, or the the king that comes from David's line, rather, that he's going to draw in all of Israel. He's going to draw in this remnant from the four corners of the earth. There's going to be peace. Judah will be at peace with Israel. They will be together as one kingdom. They will subdue every last enemy but this will only happen during a time when the nations come to him. Again, what I want you to see here is how tightly connected this all is to the birth of Christ. Now see how tightly they're connected as they're being given here. Again, think of this analogy of the mountain that we brought up earlier, right? As we approach it, you know, from a distance we see there's this one mountain, there's Uh, One peak, if you will, but as we come closer and closer to this mountain, we see it more and more clearly, and one mountain breaks into two different peaks. In the span of just a few chapters here in Isaiah, this is essentially what you've been seeing unfold. We see not only the birth of Christ foretold, but also his second coming, but also the restoration of all things, which entails his millennial reign on earth. It includes the restoration of Israel. It includes the judgment of all mankind, right? Right? and then the inauguration even of his eternal kingdom. Now, this is all incredibly important simply because this is the reality that Israel is to pin their hopes on in the midst of judgment, right? This is, their their hope is this child who is to come and they know not the day when all these things would take place, but they know that through him, these things will happen. Ultimately, they know that through this one, all things will be made right. Remember, they're, they're facing judgment here. This is what they hear in light of judgment. Their hope in the midst of that judgment is this one to come. That hope is multifaceted. He's not only going to deliver them from their sins, which we'll see in a little bit here, but he restores Israel, and he's going to do so in such a way that it blows everything out of the water that they ever experienced before under David that the reason for this is that their God will be with them in their midst. When they heard these things, they, they naturally saw all of this as, as one event or one mountain to keep the analogy consistent. Right? The spirit of Christ revealed these things to the prophets. They longed to see the day this Messiah would come. And the reason for that is because they knew of all the glories that would follow him. And yet in the midst of that, They did not have an answer as to the burning question of when. What they did have, beloved, was hope. That's what they had in the midst of judgment was hope. It was not merely a hope that they would be free one day from the Assyrians and subsequently the Babylonians, but rather they had a hope in the freedom from the bondage of their three greatest enemies, which were sin, Satan, and death, our three greatest enemies, it was a hope in the restoration of all things. It was a hope in the curse finally being lifted. For this reason, they didn't simply look to Christ's birth. They looked to his life. This is the second thing the prophets longed to see. I'll turn back with me to Isaiah 9. We'll look at verses 1 and 2. the prophet writes, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. Now, the first thing to notice in this section is that, again, it's nestled in the midst of context that speaks of all the future hope that Christ will accomplish. See, in verses 3 through 5, there's a day depicted where Israel will be delivered from their oppressors. Notice again that this Messiah would enlarge the nation. He would increase their joy, and the reason for this is shown in verse 4. They're going to be delivered. They're no longer under the burdensome yoke of their oppressor. But then see in verse 5, and this is where it can't be simply that they've returned to the land. In verse 5, it speaks of a time where every warrior's boot used in battle and every single cloak rolled in blood will be destroyed. Beloved, this speaks of the glorious time where war will be a distant memory in the minds of all those who live in the presence of their king. Now think of that. War won't even be something that you contemplate at that time. It will be complete peace under the rule and reign of this Messiah. Now, we see this clearly in verses 6 through 7, which we've already touched on, but notice that the coming of this Messiah is the culmination of all of these blessings, right? Not only the spiritual blessings, but the material blessings that God has promised, right? The freedom from sin, Satan, and death, the freedom from war, it's not even a thought, Now, the purpose of his coming is to destroy our three great enemies. But for all this to actually happen, this Savior must be born. This Savior must live. Again, these are all literal events that they saw would have to happen in order for the times of refreshing to come in, if you will, in order for the times where the glories that are to come in light of Christ's second coming would flow from. Well, what we see here is that all of these things are connected. Uh, the birth of Christ and the life and ministry of Christ is all tightly connected to this future hope that Israel had. Uh, this one who is to come is the only one who can bring in the reality of, of peace. And I mean, lasting peace. And no earthly king could give that assurance, can they? But all this speaks again of this future hope in the Messiah who's going to bring a light and, and peace to God's people and all of this is put into stark contrast to Israel's current kings, and especially the kings of all these foreign nations that are going to come in. So they, they know, again, judgment's right around the corner. When he's talking about this gloom and darkness under God's judgment, uh, followed by this time of joy and delight in his salvation here, he's talking about this idea that Galilee is going to be destroyed by the Assyrians in the very near future. Right? The Assyrians, we know, as we've seen in, in the minor prophets, they just come in and wreak havoc. Well, they know that by the uh, foretelling of Isaiah here, that one day Galilee will actually be restored. And not only this, it's all in the perfect tense here. And, and what he's doing here is just simply showing that these things are, are so certain that he speaks of them as if they've already happened. Now, again, they don't know the timeline of these things. They know judgment is certain These are things that the the prophets made careful searches into. They tried to discern the time when this would happen. What they did know for certain, though, is that one would come and that his deliverance would be so much more than a mere political deliverance. And yet it didn't simply divorce it from that aspect either. Again, keep in mind the analogy of this mountain. Again, these, these guys hearing of Isaiah's prophecy, and even Isaiah himself would have seen this as one mountain, if you will. They would have seen this all as one event where uh, the the Messiah comes and he comes to rule. And yet, as we draw near this mountain, we see these distinct peaks, where each peak represents a different aspect of the Messiah's kingship, if you will. Now, when we come to the New Testament and see how, how Matthew treated this verse, we see this even more clearly. The apostle Quotes from Isaiah 9 to show that uh, Christ has fulfilled this prophecy. So, if you will, turn with me to Matthew 4. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17 here. And I'm just going to reference them. We're not going to read them. Now, the context of this whole section is he's talking about the beginning of Christ's life and ministry. So, Christ has just undergone the temptation in the wilderness, and then he he returns to the region of Galilee, and he sets up in Capernaum. And this is where Matthew picks up on Isaiah 9. Uh, he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through, the, uh, through Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 3. Now, Matthew's not a dummy, guys. Matthew would have had in mind all these different promises concerning Israel and everything else back in Isaiah 9, which we just saw the context of here right? He would have known that these things are portrayed so closely that they are correctly seen as as one mountain, if you will, or one event with multiple aspects to it. But this is why in verse 17, he introduces Jesus's ministry by saying, uh, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the core message wrapped up in, in all of this is that The nearness of the kingdom is actually tied to this person and work of the Messiah. When Jesus began his ministry, he establishes his reign, if you will, and yet not all of this will be realized until he comes again. But it is at this decisive moment where he enters into his ministry in real space and time that the necessity of faith and repentance in, or or repentance and faith in this Messiah is actually made very clear. But what is he doing what is God doing? He's delivering on his promise to make all things new through this Messiah. He's delivering on his promise to provide a way for his people to be freed from not only the bondage of sin, but also of Satan and death. Beloved, he's delivering on his promise to restore them and to redeem all things under the curse of sin. Now he's doing so through this concept known as the kingdom of God. In other words, the proclamation that this kingdom is at hand is all designed to show them and even us that this world as we know it is hastening towards this day of final judgment. And so the message is repent. So the message is repent. It's not merely a message of hope, but a message of warning. And the reason for that is simply that the reality is God has kicked off this process with the coming of his Messiah, and this Messiah has entered into ministry, and so it is only a matter of time before all the things Isaiah spoke of are fulfilled. Now, from this point forward in Christ's life, everything leads towards his crucifixion and his resurrection, which is the third thing the prophets longed to see. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 53. We'll see here the death of Christ foretold. Now, there's a bit of context that actually starts back in, in 52. So go ahead and flip to that, actually. We're going to look at the last few verses there. But there's a great deal of context that's often ignored when we consider Isaiah 53, but it all gives us key insight to what we've been seeing today, namely that this, uh, the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ are all attached and have massive implications in mind for the nation of Israel. So broadly speaking, in this section, Isaiah, he's prophesying of of this judgment that is to come again by the hand of the Assyrians and later by the hand of the Babylonians. And that's exactly what we've seen through the minor prophets as well, if you remember. But in chapter 52, he's delivering a message of hope. He's delivering a message of salvation to them in the midst of these times of judgment. And so what he's saying is that just as you went into exile and bondage through the hand of the Assyrians, the Lord will actually bring you out of exile and bondage. He will return you to the land. And yet the purpose of this is found in chapter 52, verse 10. God is going to display his power by rescuing his people from the oppressor. But notice that the Lord does this so that all the nations of the earth may see the salvation of the Lord. Well, the implications of this, especially where it's at in the book here, is that Israel does not need to be saved merely from the hand of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Now, God is going to deal with the issue of their captivity here, but more importantly, we're going to see that God is going to deal with the primary cause of their captivity, which is their sin. This is a a crucial shift that takes place here, and it takes place in verse 13, but it provides a transition from chapter 52 then to chapter 53. And all that he's doing here is showing them that, that this work of Christ that is or the work of God, if you will, that deliverance of Israel from the oppressor, that the Lord exalts Israel, that the Lord is going to extend his salvation to the ends of the earth, all of this is going to be accomplished through the work of this suffering servant we are now introduced to in verse 13. Now the prophet speaks of him first as one who will prosper. He will be high, he will be lifted up and greatly exalted. But then notice in verse 14 what he says of him here. He's going to be exalted in the same exact way that Israel will be exalted. Just as many are going to be astonished at the suffering and exaltation of this pitiful nation, and so too they be astonished at this suffering and subsequent exaltation of this Christ, of this servant that Isaiah speaks of. He's going to suffer in an unimaginable way, more than any before him or any after him, and yet his sufferings will affect all of the world which is what we see in verse 15. Isaiah says thus, that is, through this servant's suffering, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. Why? For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Well, Ultimately, it's through this unlikely man's suffering and exaltation that the nations are going to see the salvation of Yahweh. And kings will be dumbfounded, and they will finally see the things, the salvation that Israel saw. But think of how backwards all of this is, and how how dumb it would sound to them. Beloved, this is why Israel would have missed all of these things, or or so many of them, in fact, missed it when Christ first came. Because what they expected was pomp and circumstance, if you will. What they expected was God coming in triumph and glory and military might to make an end to all his enemies through his power of judgment, and yet... This is not how the servant would come. He would come in utter humility and the beautiful reality, especially if you just think about it, is that he would come in the same suffering and humility in mirroring Israel, in mirroring many of us. He came and walked the very same path his own children had to walk. The God who created all things, who sustains all things, who by the very word of his power does all things, came in human flesh, but he suffered and died. Well, because of all this, though, he would be exalted, he would be glorified, and in turn, exalt and glorify his people. As we see, though, this exaltation of his people produces this worldwide effect. It is then in light of all this, and when we come to Isaiah 53, that we start to see all of this explained in a rather profound way. Now, this is another beloved passage, right? We all are familiar with this passage, at least many of us would be, but we know from simply reading it, it speaks of the death of Jesus on the cross, but also why he died on the cross. Now, again, through this whole section, he's using the perfect tense to speak of the certainty of these events as if they've already happened, Notice how he begins, though. He begins by describing Jesus as a tender shoot and root that grew up out of the parched ground. And again, he's alluding to the same things we've already seen in in chapters 7, 9, and 11 of Isaiah. He's showing more clearly how this one who is to come, that is, uh, this Messiah, would spring forth from the shattered remnants of the Davidic kingdom. In other words, he's coming from this line that has essentially been broken and, and shattered and left to be in tatters but he will restore it. He will usher in the glories of his eternal kingdom. This one, in other words, is the one. He's going to want to fulfill the promises to David. He's going to be the glorious king will sit on his throne forever. And yet look at how he's described here in the text. Isaiah tells us there's nothing remarkable about him starting in verses one through three, right? There's no kingly appearance that we should even look upon him nor anything striking about his face that would be attracted to him. He's not even going to garner the affections and and the respect of a king. Instead, he's going to be despised and forsaken of all men. He will be a man of sorrows. He will be a man of grief. He will not be esteemed, but rather he will be considered accursed. And yet, what does the prophet continue to tell us in verses 4 through 6? Well, rather than being accursed by God, he... This suffering servant actually bore our curse. There's something far more magnificent in mind. He was pierced for our transgressions, he goes on to say. He was crushed for our sins. He was punished on our behalf, and by his scourgings we are healed. Well, the simple reason all of this takes place is that each one of us has gone our own way in sin. And so what did the Lord do but cause our sins to fall on him? The servant, he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. He was crushed. In fact, he was crushed because of us. He was crushed because of the sin of humanity. Well, unlike Israel, unlike you and I, we see in seven through nine, this innocent suffering servant would not even defend himself. He was not guilty of anything deserving death. And yet, according to verse 10, all of this was a deliberate plan of God. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Beloved, he was pleased to crush him and put him to grief. And then notice the conditional, if. Verse 10, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Notice the prophet doesn't explain how any of this would happen, does he? He doesn't explain how this servant's going to die as a guilt offering in the place of the people, in the place of the sinner, and yet still somehow see his offspring or prolong his days. What Isaiah does here is he just simply assumes that those who hear his message are going to understand that somehow, some way, this suffering servant, despite willingly going to die in the place of the sinner, is going to live. He assumes that you would be familiar with the many promises given to David that this one who is to come and sit on the throne of David will do so throughout all eternity, that this holy one would die, but he would not see decay. Well, the reason he does this, believe it or not, is because he's really not worried about defending the resurrection. He just assumes you're going to believe that. What he's worried about here, what he's actually bringing to light here is the fact that Christ is going to be exalted, that he'll be high and lifted up above every other name. In other words, he's not concerned about defending the resurrection. He's just simply saying it's going to happen, essentially. He's concerned about what's produced as a result of this man's death that he would justify the many, that he would take their sins upon himself and intercede on their behalf. And then subsequently, as we see in verse 12, this suffering servant will divide the spoils of his victory with his children. That is the many and the strong. And beloved, that's you if you were in Christ. Now again, all of this comes in the context of judgment. All of this comes in the context of Israel's rebellion, but God's sure promise to save and restore them by dealing with the root cause of their disobedience, which is sin. But all of this is also grounded on this promise given to David way back when that one would come forth from his line and rule on the throne forever, that he would come and restore the kingdom to Israel And we just saw in chapter 53, this one is going to be exalted on David's throne, but the way that he's going to be exalted is actually through his suffering. He must suffer. He must die in order to accomplish the redemption. He must die to inherit the spoils of his victory. And so it is actually through his death that he will reign forever, which again boggles the human mind, does it not? It is through his death that this everlasting covenant would become or will come about. Well, now flip with me just another couple pages to Isaiah 55, and I want to draw your attention to what more will become of this everlasting covenant. Isaiah 55, verse three. I want to show you again one time how this is tightly connected, that even the death of Christ is connected to the glories to follow. The prophet writes, incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Now, this everlasting covenant is in reference to the new covenant through Christ. But notice how the prophet says this covenant is also according to the faithful mercies shown to David. In other words, this covenant sworn to David gives way to a new and better covenant, and yet it is all born out of that promise given to David. It's all born out of this promise concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And so turn with me again, if you can, to Jeremiah 33. If you can't, that's okay. Just simply listen as we go through this section right here. I believe Kurt actually read this earlier today too. Now the prophet writes, again in Jeremiah 33, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. Same thing we've been hearing all day, right? And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. Now, I'm going to just summarize the rest of this section, but he continues to speak of the surety of this one coming, the surety of this promise to redeem Israel through this Christ as certain as the sun and the moon come out. He says that as certain as the Lord's covenant is to bring about the sun by day and the moon by night, this one shall come. And as a result of his coming, God will once again restore the fortunes of Israel. He will once again have mercy. And the point of all these things is that the hope of Israel was not in earthly kings. It was not even in this earthly kingdom. It was ultimately in this one who is to come, whose kingdom would know no end. In other words, the hope of Israel, the hope of Judah and Jerusalem is in this savior, this one who will reunite them and sit on the throne of David forevermore. And what we see here is that this surety of the promises is set. And despite the failures of Israel, despite judgment being poured out on them time and again, despite this lengthy time of delay in which they must wait to even see this Messiah, the burning hope in the midst of all of it is this Messiah. The burning hope of Israel is in this one to come, who is to usher in this everlasting kingdom that God promised to David. It's according to this promise that he swore with him, right? That the prophets all speak of again and again. This promise is mediated through Christ, meaning that it ultimately rests on God himself. And so this faithless generation of Israelites that's being judged is is not the, the basis of God's promises being fulfilled, they're going to undergo judgment. They're going to see despair, and yet God out of them will, will raise a remnant to himself that he will preserve and make good on his promises to. The promise yet to be fulfilled by this suffering servant is what gave that generation of Israelites hope. They had a hope that God was faithful. They had a hope that God was merciful, that most of all, that God would actually deliver on this promise of this one who is to come and bring salvation, not just to Israel, but to the ends of the earth. And beloved, that's you and I. More than this, they had a hope that this salvation would lead to the end of all days where our three greatest enemies of sin, Satan, and death would be forever destroyed. Beloved, this is what Israel was waiting for. This was what their hope was. This is what the prophets longed to see. They made all these careful searches and inquiries concerning the time and the setting when all of this would come about because they were eager to see God's salvation, not only of the sinner, but all the glories to follow that would become uh, or would come about as a result of this salvation. Meaning plainly, they knew that the the time that Christ would actually come and that he would be born, that he would live, that he would die and become resurrected, would all set into motion this chain of events that inevitably culminate in the redemption of all things. They knew, again, that all these things meant the kingdom of God was near, if you will, that the curse was finally being lifted. This is what their hope was from the day Adam plunged the world into darkness and despair all the way through. They had hoped that this one was coming. This was their hope in the midst of judgment, of exile. This was the hope of the prophets in the midst of these times because, guys, they didn't escape all that just because they were prophets. This was the hope of the man who saw his desperate condition before a thrice holy God because he knew that he could not obey the law, that he knew he failed time and again, that the sacrifices were not sufficient. Beloved, they were not merely hopeful that the Assyrians and the Babylonians would be done away with, but that ultimately God would defeat all of their enemies, but especially those enemies we are so acquainted with of sin, Satan, and death. Just think of how much you and I have grown now waiting for that day when Christ returns, right? We know that when he does, it's gonna finally kick off all of these things that bring us and everything else into glory if we're in Christ. There's no more sin, there's no more pain, there's no more death, there's no more despair. None of that. There's no more Satan. All of these things will be just utterly swept away, utterly done away with. And yet, beloved, that is merely the beginning of all that God has in store for us. That is just the beginning. Now think of how you and I long for just the church to be pure, that it'd be free from false doctrines, that it's going to be free of divisions and factions and everything else that we see so often within the greater American church or even the church in all the world. Think of the time when we wait when there will be perfect, true unity that we have. I mean, think of all the dumb things we could do, right? Where we just, we, we put our foot in our mouths all the time and we inadvertently sin against somebody else that we don't want to sin against, that we love, and yet we just make it wrong somehow. That's going to be done, beloved. What, I, what I'm trying to show you is that all of these things are the same things that Israel had a hope in. They didn't see all these things as clearly as you and I do, right? We have this, the fullness of the scriptures given to us. We've had... Uh, much time. We've had many people that have expounded the scriptures and given us insight to these things. But guys, the reason why these guys were all so eager to understand these things is because they knew that it meant God would finally and decisively deal with sin, but he would also deal with Satan and death. And all of these things would be done away with as this one who sat on the throne of David forevermore ruled in perfect righteousness and peace. Attached to that promise was so, so much. He would reunite both the kingdoms, right? They're they're bitterly divided. They hate each other. And yet he would reunite them. And yet his eternal kingdom would not know decay. It would not know the threat of war or extinction. Not even would their own folly and sin screw everything up. Are these not the same things you hope for in some way? You're not Israel, But do you not long for the day when war will never be something you think of again? Do you not just long for the day when your own folly and sin will not get in the way? Beloved, they they looked at all of these things because they knew that God himself would be in their midst and that he would be the source of all blessings that would flow to them. Now, you might be asking, why am I making... this big, big deal about all of this. Why am I drawing so much time and attention to these connections between his first coming and his second coming and the hope of Israel and their own restoration? Well, the plain reason why is that these are truly inseparable events in some manner. And all of these things are, are one mountain, so to speak. There's one grand event unfolding and the meaningful difference is just time. I think again of this analogy of the mountain as the kingdom, There is this decisive moment in all of space and time, right, when the Son of God took on human flesh, he dwelt among us, he began his earthly ministry, and it was at this time that the kingdom was at hand. And yet as we come closer and closer to the mountain, we see these distinct peaks and valleys and subtleties and nuances where the many events in history, and especially in salvation history, are seen in light of the coming kingdom because this tension is still here. We're still waiting Well, what does that mean? But that all things prior to Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection, and all things afterwards are all focused on his exaltation, beloved. They're all focused on Christ being lifted up as the one worthy king who could defeat our enemies. But not only this, he shares the spoils of his victory with us. How awesome is that? This is why the disciples were asking just prior to Christ's ascension, before he returned to heaven, is it time? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Well, he didn't reply, in reality, you should look at the restoration of the kingdom as this spiritual reality. No, what he said is it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, he affirmed these same realities that they were eagerly hopeful for. He affirmed Israel must be restored and they knew this must happen for the restoration of all things to take place. But beloved, what they were looking for was freedom. And not just immediate freedom, freedom from the curse. Again, the meaningful difference was time. A span of time that was not theirs to know, a span of time that's not even ours to know at this day. But they knew all things were working towards this inevitable end where the kingdom of God would be realized in full. And beloved, this was their hope. As we've seen over and again today, at least I hope you've seen it, is that the hope of Israel was in this one who was to come, who would sit on this throne of David forevermore, that he would rule in perfect righteousness and secure peace, everlasting peace and freedom. But most of all, he would secure the redemption of everything. And yet, it was only through his suffering and death that they saw he would be exalted. And it was only through his suffering and death that he would share in the spoils of his victory. The beloved, this is what the prophets longed to see. They understood that he must die. They understood the sufferings of Christ actually produced the glories to follow that not only included the forgiveness of sins, but the restoration and redemption. Of all things under the curse. They understood God would deal with the primary root cause of their rebellion. But, beloved, that this would ultimately in turn produce the exaltation of Israel and even our own one day. Now, put that in terms as we see this as Gentiles. What do we do with all of this? Well, the first coming of Christ is so tightly connected to his second coming and all the glories that follow that every single time we think of what Christ accomplished through his first coming, we should naturally think of what he will accomplish in the future. Right? Life is filled with tension. You don't have to speak to it. We all know, we all groan in some sense. You all wake up stiff one day and not stiff the next, or your bodies are just slowly falling apart. You see the effects of sin all around you. You know that Christ has forgiven you. And yet, if you're honest with yourself, do you not in one sense just hate that? You hate the reality of brokenness in in this earth, on, on this earth? But in the midst of all that, you have a grand hope that Christ is returning, that he will bring in the fullness of his kingdom, and all these things that we see every single day will be done away with. We might be poor pilgrims in the world now, and yet one day, after all the gloom and despair, we will actually rule with Christ. We will rule and reign with him. Our work might be cursed one day, or now, but one day, none of our work will be cursed. It would not be futile. We might see chaos, death, mourning, weeping, pain, darkness, taint every single aspect of life today, And yet one great day, none of those things will be there. We will have peace, eternal life, joy, and even glorified bodies. And yet we will live in the light of Christ's presence forevermore. So what does that mean, but that our hope rests in this coming savior? We know we can confidently wait that just as he began this good work and as we must wait now that he will finish this good work. And oh, what a great and joyous day that will be when we are united with him. But beloved, not simply united with him, we will share in the spoils of his victory. How awesome is our God? Well, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that you have given us such a wonderful inheritance in Christ, that you not only forgive us of our sins and you've redeemed us and restored us to fellowship with you, but that there is so much more in state that we await as we know that you will glorify us. But we we wait also for the redemption of all things. Let us not lose hope in the midst of a world that is broken and marred by sin. Let us not lose the fact or the reality that Christ is coming again. May we be filled with a, a burning eagerness for that day. As the minutia of life press us down on us as we are tempted to look and find fulfillment in in, in all sorts of different ways. May you press Christ upon our eyelids once again, that we may see him as our treasure, that we may see him as not only the one who has saved us and secured our redemption, but is the fount of all good things, both now and forevermore. We pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.